bits and pretzels inspire you. You will figure it out. This is clearly the place to be. Servus, everyone. I'm Britta Wedling, Editor-in-Chief of Bits and Pretzels, and I welcome you to this episode of the Bits and Pretzels podcast. Today on the show, we are going to learn how you can actually launch a million-dollar company within just six weeks from one of the most successful cloud communication entrepreneurs in the tech world. Because that's what he actually did himself when he started to climb the ladder in Silicon Valley. His name is Jeff Larson, and he's the co-founder and CEO of $8.5 billion software firm Twilio, a cloud communications platform used by millions of developers around the tech world and big tech companies, including Airbnb and Uber. Twilio allows software engineers to programmatically make and receive phone calls, send and receive text messages, and perform other communication functions using its web service APIs. The company is getting a boost from the pandemic as its customer, both old and new, scrambled to update their operations for a new digital age. Shares of Twilio are up over 160% so far in 2020. In this podcast, the former Amazon executive explains what he has learned from Jeff Bezos during his time at the e-commerce giant. And he also talks about the value of customer centricity and how you find out if your idea is actually worth pursuing to start with. The best thing to do is just to build something relatively quickly and then get it in front of your users as quickly as possible because they will illuminate the path for you. And we are reaching Jeff in his house in the Bay Area in California, where he's recording from one of his kids' rooms due to Corona. Sitting at a small table surrounded by children's toys and colorful drawings. Hi, Jeff. Many thanks for coming on the Pits and Pretzels podcast today. Thank you, Rita. It's great to be here. And so, sitting in your kids' room right now? <laughs> yes, I came into uh, one of my kids' rooms where uh, I could have a nice, quiet place, although then. They've kept coming in, and uh, and when I when I sent them on their way, they started uh, texting me uh, from their <laughs> iPad, um, which which you know prior to COVID there were no iPads uh, for our kids, but uh, certain realities of homeschooling and all that, and so now of course they know how to text us, and so they I don't know what he's been texting me, but he's been texting me something that I'm sure seems uh, extraordinarily important. And you're sitting at the kids' table. But yes, I'm in. It's a yellow. The walls are yellow. I've got a Dr. Seuss uh, painting on the wall. I've got a bunch of art from school on the wall. That's the room I'm in. It's fair to say that many of the developers and engineers out there know your company because obviously they use Twilio for their messaging, whether it's SMS messaging or email. Uh, but how do you explain what you do to a 10-year-old? I don't know how old your kids are, but how would you explain what you do to a kid? Well, you know, they kids see us, you know, using our phones, obviously, probably a little more than, than we should be, but they see us and they see us receiving text messages and sending text messages and calling friends and family and even doing video like FaceTime. And so they understand the importance of communications in our lives and just how often we are all using communications. And so when When I describe Twilio like to my kids, I say, well, what Twilio allows companies to do and people who write software programs to do is to use communications just like we use communications in our everyday life. And I think that kind of 
tells the, the broad story. Your company is now worth $9.5 billion and you're crossing $1 billion in revenue uh, this year uh, in actually original revenue. And you've crossed that a while ago, but that's not how it all started. Tell us about the beginnings of Twilio and how you actually came up with the idea for your company. You started in 2008, right? We started in 2008 and I am a software developer. So I've been writing code since the mid nineties. And I've also started multiple companies along the way. And, you know, one of the things that I realized was that at every one of the companies that I had started, there were really two things in common that I think pretty much every company share in common these days. First is that we're using the power of software to build a better product and a better customer experience, a better company than anything else that was out there. And if you think about the superpower of software, it is the ability to listen to a customer, hear their problem, go build a prototype quickly, put it in front of your customer and get feedback. And then iterate your way towards a better and better and better solution to your customer's problem. That is the superpower of software. Mm-hmm. And so every one of my companies, we were doing that uh, partially because I, as a software developer, was on the founding team of every company. But the other common thread of every company was that we needed communications to engage with our customers. And it was always a little bit different. Sometimes it was during our marketing. Sometimes it was during our sales process. Sometimes it was during uh, while we were delivering on the core product itself. Sometimes it was after the fact with service and support. We always had these use cases where uh, we needed to communicate with customers. Yet we couldn't do it. It was like a hardware industry. You had to go to carriers and roll out copper wires and rack up telco gear. And everything took years and millions of dollars. And so we started Twilio back in 2008 to turn all that into a single API call and to turn it into software. Well, you know, I was going to say, and, and the amazing thing is that the software developers of the world are out there reinventing like every industry, if you think about it, and building amazing companies and building amazing products. Yet communications was always kind of off the table. It was something they were not able to, to build on. And so what we've done with Twilio is made communications a first-class citizen in the toolbox of every developer in the world. That's our goal. So that when they can use communications to build great products and great customer experiences and ultimately help their companies engage their customers better, that builds more loyalty, that builds happier customers, and that builds stronger businesses. And so that is the mission that we've been invested in for the past uh, 13 years. Yeah. And you already mentioned that Twilio is not your first company. You did like quite a few other companies before you actually launched Twilio. And one of these companies you've actually launched within six weeks. And I think that speaks a lot about, you know, being agile and, you know, move fast and move quickly, which I think is one of the key qualities engineers and entrepreneurs need right now in the crisis where we are in. So, so talk about how you've launched within six weeks. So my second company was a company called StubHub, uh, which is a live event ticket marketplace where you buy and sell concert tickets and sporting events and things like that. And uh, it, it's went on, it was, it was uh, bought by eBay uh, several years ago and uh, well-known in the United States. It's kind of like Viagogo is um, uh, across Europe. And Uh, the key thing about that one was we had this idea that, um, people needed to, like, there needed to be a, uh, secondhand marketplace for tickets, which is a large market, uh, that needed to be safe, that needed to, uh, have security built in, uh, that needed to be legitimate, not like buying a ticket on the street corner with cash. And so that was the core idea. And, you know, when you're building a company or you're building a product, you can dwell for all sorts of time 
mm-hmm. on many details. You mm-hmm. can you can sit there and scratch your head and wonder about all sorts of decisions you need to make. But you know what? I've always found the best thing to do is just to build something relatively quickly and then get it in front of your users as quickly as possible because they will illuminate the path for you. Some big decision that you're trying to make, should we do A or B? Well, guess what? Maybe customers don't even care about it at all. And so the only way you're going to find that out it's getting your idea out in front of customers and then letting customers guide the way. And so at StubHub, we went from the first line of code written to launching the website in six weeks. But clearly that was just the beginning, right? And yes, it was a very busy six weeks. We were working very right. hard. But you know, the day of launch, a lot of people often think of as, okay, well, that's the end of this process, right? We launched. No, launch mm. is just the beginning, uh, of the process of actually learning from your customers what they really want from you. And so I've always been a big believer yeah, in that iterative power of software. And, and you, you said, right, that the work of a software company is never done. So what specifically do you mean by that? Well, the, uh, the more that you innovate for customers, the more you dive in, solve their problems, it tends to be that the more that those customers will bring problems back to you. Like, hey, you've solved this problem so well. Guess what? There's other related areas that you can help me solve. And if you're listening to customers, customers will illuminate the path for how you can continually build a more powerful and more effective product that serves your customers' needs. And so the best companies start with one problem and then, and by solving it, earn their customers' trust. And trust is really important for a number of reasons. But one of my favorite reasons is because with trust, customers open up to you. Customers want to share their problems because they're hoping that maybe you can help them to solve those problems. And that is such uh, uh, an important concept because un, you know, big, hairy, unsolved customer problems are like the raw fuel of business. Right. And so the more exposure you have to customers who are willing to share their big, unsolved problems with you, that is the fuel that drives your business. A lot of people think that having a great solution or a great product is the key to business. I think finding a great problem is the key to business. Yeah, and that that's one of the questions that I wanted to dig in deeper to. How do I find the right product? If I would ask my mother what problems she wants to get solved, she would probably name five to ten. <laughs> so where do I start as an entrepreneur there? <laughs> I would say start with an audience that you love. Maybe it's your mother, um, but uh, I, I hope it's your mother. Yeah, oh, it's um, surely my mother. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Start by serving an audience that you love. You know, in my career, I've, I've started four companies. Um, and, you know, my third company was actually a bricks and mortar retailer. We started these stores for extreme sporting goods. So skateboarding, snowboarding, right? surfing. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, my role is I was building all the technology to run this retail business. And it was actually an exciting time from a technology point of view. I got to build all sorts of systems like point of sale systems and shipping and receiving, like all the logistics that go on in a retail business. I built uh, software to manage, uh, which was a lot of fun. The problem was uh, the business and the customers we were serving weren't ones that I was truly passionate about because I was not an extreme sports athlete. I didn't skateboard. I didn't surf. I didn't snowboard. And at the end of the day, I think when you're doing an entrepreneurial endeavor, when you're building something, all the blood, sweat, and tears that goes into that, 
you need to have a visceral drive to want to serve that customer. You have to feel like every day, all the, that blood, sweat, and tears that you're putting into the endeavor is making someone's life better and you really care about that. And so I think the most important thing you can start with is finding a customer audience that is hopefully large and representative of many people in the world, but also a customer audience that you care deeply about. Right. On the one hand, obviously, you have to serve your customer. On the other hand, you want to find something visionary out there, something new and, you know, groundbreaking. Well, those two things are not in conflict with each other. Because if you think about it, if you invent products for problems people don't have, you're not going to succeed in business. So ultimately, the things that you decide to build and the areas in which you decide to innovate do need to solve a customer problem. Now, customers don't uh, always know exactly how to express that problem, and rarely do customers know how to express the solution. But you still need to um, make the crux of your work to find a big unsolved problem. right? So for Amazon and e-commerce generally, the problem to solve is selection and price that are available via e-commerce that are not available when stores have to be local, when they have to have um, mm -hmm. uh, real estate footprints, when they can only carry you know five uh, options on the shelf instead of 500 that maybe exist in the world. And when they have to uh, rent expensive real estate in expensive cities in order to, to show it to you, right? Those are all reasons mm. that customers' lives can be improved by the fact that e-commerce exists when before it didn't. But necessarily how that was going to work all needed to be figured out. And then right. once you earn customers' trust, then you start to see the next problem is, oh, well, that is a great trade-off, except it takes me you know, a week to get the package shipped to me. And I don't like that. And so the next problem you go solve is great. How do I make it instead of a week? How do I make it three days and then two days and then one day and then eventually an hour and continue to solve that problem of how do I get the immediate gratification along with um, selection, along with great pricing, et cetera. And you go down this path and then you can use those same philosophies to solve things like um, other uh, categories of businesses like Amazon right. did with Amazon Web Services, right? They kind of yeah, applied you work, a lot actually, of the same philosophy. Yeah, I was one of the first product managers at AWS back right. in 2004, 2005, around that time frame. And, you know, it's really the same philosophies of saying, well, wouldn't companies want, um, you know, more flexibility? Wouldn't they want, you know, so you can think about selection. And you, you can also say that when you know what your customer wants, it's easier to sell your customer new tools or new products. That, but that's, that's a different story. You are just talking about that you were one of the first um, product managers at, at AWS. Uh, besides moving fast and being agile and also be focused on your customer, which is like the credo uh, of Jeff Bezos, this idea of working back from the customer, the day one mindset, what else did you learn uh, at Amazon that you could can use until today for, for Twilio? I am an entrepreneur. The thing that attracted me to Amazon was the idea that they wanted entrepreneurs working there. In fact, they wanted owners. And one of the things that I took away from my time at Amazon and have built into the Twilio culture is this, is this culture of ownership, where you push ownership and accountability for what the company does down to the folks in the company who are closest to our customers. Mm 
You know, most companies operate in a more of a top-down command and control kind of structure where the people at the top make the most important decisions and then the company implements it. And I fundamentally believe that the aggregate of all of the customer interactions that Twilions, that's what we call our employees, are having today with customers inform them better of what we need to do in the future than what I know, because I'm, 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 I'm on a podcast right now. I'm not talking to a customer. <laughs> and so, uh, all of the thousands of Twilions that are out there right, you know, today working with customers to solve big problems, they know best what we need to do to guide the company forward and to better serve our customers. And so our job as leaders is to empower our folks on the front line to be owners, to be able to own their roadmaps and be accountable for the outcomes. And you know what? The best people, the best talent want that. Nobody wants to be just told what to do. People want to be told an area to go focus their creative energy to be able to go make the world better for a customer and ultimately build a better company. And it takes a lot of work because there's a lot of things that uh, leaders unintentionally do uh, to take uh, that autonomy, that agency away from our people. But our goal as a company is to continually push ownership and accountability and really um, destiny of each team down to that team. And when you do that, you get the best work out of people because people are motivated from that intrinsic drive to build something and to serve their customer as opposed to uh, other extrinsic right. reasons, motivators like, right. I, did I get a bonus or not? Which I think is a very bad motivator of people. Right. So at Twilio, for example, we don't have bonuses. Um, Which is our, also cheaper for you guys because you don't have to pay bonuses or do you get, get do, do employees get any other sort of uh, money, um, additional money? Yeah, our total <laughs> compensation is about the same. Okay. But what we do is we pay base salaries that are higher than most companies. Mm -hmm. And then in, in lieu of a bonus, we tend to give more equity than other companies. You said that you learned a lot at Amazon. How was working with Jeff Bezos like? Well, I would say I, I, you know, didn't have, uh, uh, you know, daily interactions with, uh, with the big man. Uh, what I will say is that, uh, you know, his intellect is, 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 is formidable. Um, and the principles with which he ran the business, but also instilled into everyone who worked there, uh, still persist to this day. Was there also something that you unlearned from your time at Amazon? Something that you say, well, that's not the right thing for me? Because obviously everybody's always talking about the good things, but, Obviously, it's also sometimes interesting for entrepreneurs to learn what you kind of have to unlearn or what you probably don't have to take away from a certain company. Yeah, I think that the Amazon culture, while it is a place that uh, demands excellence and is and is a fantastic place uh, for people who are learning and growing and want to build something meaningful, it's also a little bit brutal. Um, I believe that the reason that... Um, Companies exist, actually, is, is to create society uh, and the communities around them stronger. Um, and the way in which you do that is by serving your customers, absolutely. Serving your shareholders, absolutely. But also by investing in community and leaving society stronger as a result. And I, that like compassionate capitalism is something that I believe uh, strongly in. Because I believe that we can do so much more together, right? There are thousands of Twilions now that we can... Um, institute change in the communities and the society uh, around us that is far greater than any of us could do individually on our own. And I think and that's a really think Amazon, important part. 
And you don't think I don't Amazon think that's ever been an that? important part of Amazon's right. um, culture. I would agree. I think they're yeah. more focused on business success, and I understand that. And different definitions of capitalism would say that is the sole purpose of a company. Um, I just believe that in modern times, I take a more expansive view of the role of the company in our society, and uh, and so that's something that I've embraced. That isn't really a part of the Amazon culture. Now we move over to our beer garden bench to get a little more personal. And, you know, we are bits and pretzels. We are a Bavarian conference. So obviously we want to toast uh, to our, on our Bavarian beer garden bench here, which, of course, in these times is a virtual beer garden bench. Uh, so we have a, a couple of steins here in front of us so we can toast to each other. <laughs> What are we drinking to? <laughs> What are we drinking? I, I would say that we are drinking to um, better times ahead for the globe and uh, for our continued um, uh, or our, 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 our success in beating back COVID-19 and a return to a society where we have the opportunity to see and greet each other in person again and uh, where we're able to um, really feel like uh, humans interacting with each other again. That's what I would toast to. Cheers, Jeff. Cheers. <laughs> If you could have a beer at Oktoberfest with any person, dead or alive, who would it be? Oh, great question. I would say Albert Einstein. And because you like physics or I do science? like physics. I do like physics. I do like science. But more than anything, I would say the combination of his intellect, his sense of humor, his personality seemed uh, seem like he is such a fascinating person. And if we could get the beer served by uh, Richard Feynman, that would be great, too. I'd just be an additional <laughs> ad. Okay, you can you can do that. Which company? Uh, you, you mentioned that you started several companies uh, already. Uh, which company would you wish you have founded yourself, and why? And I'm asking you this because you obviously had like several ideas that you didn't pursue. So talk about that. You know, I have no regrets. Uh, I feel fantastic about having founded Twilio, and you know, life takes us in a certain way where we end up with the 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 ideas and the and the the worldview in our head that allows us to have an insight that maybe no one else has had. And so, I have no regrets about life has led me to create Twilio, and I'm so happy doing what I do every day. Um, the one thing I'll tell you a funny story though. Uh, I had in 2006 or seven. Um, I had the idea that is basically Dropbox. Uh, and obviously, Dropbox is a fantastic product. And, uh, and I know Drew, and, and he's a fantastic entrepreneur. And he um, was also at our Bits and Pretzels event last year and had the pleasure oh, yeah. to interview him. Really cool guy. Did you know that he had a, a grunge band, a cover band? He's a, he's a musician uh, running his own grunge cover band. Nice I did not band. know that. What did he cover? <laughs> 90s songs, like grunge songs, like Nirvana and these guys, you know, like this sounds like <laughs> teen spirit thing. Here's the thing. Yeah, so I, so I had the, basically what is the idea for Dropbox back about 2006. But here's the interesting thing. I went around to customers, potential customers, you know, just people, and I would explain the idea that I had. The problem was the idea that I had was um, people should back up their computers and I have a better way for them to do it involving the cloud and some peer-to-peer -peer technology and blah, 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 blah. 
an interesting thing happens. You know, people try to be polite, but when they have mm-hmm. no idea what to make of this idea, you just told them, they say, oh, well, that's, uh, you know. Sounds interesting. This is how about also the, very yeah, American. Interesting. Yeah. How, how about them Yankees? You know, they, they'll just change the topic on you. Um, and you're like, <laughs> oh, okay, well, I guess that didn't really resonate. But when you tell them about a problem that is actually interesting, they'll ask a lot of follow-up questions, and those are good signs. I was pitching for the wrong problem, whereas Dropbox uh, pitched pretty much the same technology for the right problem, which was sharing and synchronizing uh, content between multiple, com- you know, your work computer and your home computer at the time. And then, you know, soon it was also between your computer and your mobile device. Um, and so it just goes to show you that solving the right customer problem is all the difference. The solution was almost identical, but I was solving the wrong problem. What are the most important steps from an idea towards a product? Yeah, I, you know, I always believe ideas are cheap. Execution is hard. And so the first thing I do, if I have an idea, like I did with the, the backup solution, or with Twilio, I did this with Twilio too, go talk to your potential customers before you do anything. So that's what happened when uh, we had the idea for Twilio. I went to developers, and because they were the potential customers of what we were doing, and I said, hey, you know, I'm thinking about building this product that is an API that you make a, a simple API request And you can make a phone ring. And then you could do things like saying some text to the caller or playing back audio or bridging calls together. Um, does that sound interesting to you? Would you have uses for it? And a funny thing happened when I asked developers that question. At first they would say, oh, well, that's, that's interesting. So how, how about the Yankees? You know, and at first I'd be like, oh, well, I guess this is another <laughs> you know, bad idea. And then about 30 seconds later, an amazing thing happened. The develop, the, whoever I was talking to would, would say, Hey, you know what? I have, a, I have a question. Can you go back? Remember that phone thing you were talking about? Could I alert someone when uh, the package ships from the e-commerce site I recently built? And I would say, yes, yes, you could. It would be easy to do. And they'd say, oh, interesting. Can I, can I try it out? And um, what I saw was the gears would start turning. The yes, there was this latent problem that developers had, which is they needed communications and they couldn't do it. And once I proposed the idea, they would start pattern matching and saying, oh, yeah, wait a minute. There was this thing six months ago, a year ago, when I needed that. And they would ask me about it. And when I started seeing that pattern repeat itself, almost every developer I talked to, the same thing would happen. That's uh, when I dropped everything that I was doing and focused only on Twilio. Started the company, incorporated, starting building the product, because that is when I knew that we were on to an unsolved problem. And right. so the first thing I do is I test it out. If it feels like it is working, the next thing I would do is as quickly as possible, get a prototype in the hands of those customers, the same people you just talked to. Like how many, t- like how many days are we talking about? I mean, you, you are obviously the expert in launching in, in, within six weeks. So what's the time frame there? Um, well, I'll tell you. I'll tell you the Twilio time frame. So we had I had those conversations with developers uh, around the end of 20, uh, 2007 and uh, had all those positive positive conversations. Started the company very beginning of two thousand eight. Three months later, we had a prototype of Twilio. Now it wasn't. You know, it was, it was still very fragile. It was one running on one server. Uh, we'd take it down every night to like you know deploy that day's changes to it. Um, but it was enough for us to start getting feedback. And we told people, well, first of all, we didn't charge anything. We just say, here, just play around. Give us your feedback. All I want is feedback. And uh, on a weekly basis, we'd send out an email to all those customers, about 50. And those early customers started building things and saying, hey, like basically, can I launch this? Will it, will it work if I, I want to I launch this, this idea that I have? 
And, um, and that was the encouragement that we needed because our customers were telling us we we're on the right track. Um, it's really important to focus your energy on hearing what those customers are doing and to connect the, the common patterns to directionally drive your early energy towards product market fit. And that's what those early customers, if you pick good customers early on, they will be the ones leading you there. And um, the other interesting thing I would say for a lot of entrepreneurs is be generous with your idea. Some entrepreneurs have this idea that they need to guard their idea. They can't tell anyone about it. You have to sign an NDA, right? And right. I've always believed the opposite, <laughs> which is that... I had to sign so many NDAs while I was working oh, yeah? in Silicon Valley. It was ridiculous. Well, it the interesting ridiculous. thing is, yeah, you know, like by default, yeah. <laughs> nobody cares about your stupid startup. You know, like that's the thing, you like, right? You're like, nobody cares. You, you are nothing. And so your whole job is to actually try to get people to care. And look, everyone's not out there trying to steal your great idea. What, what you are trying to do is to get anyone to actually care at all about this thing that you're building. And so the more generous you are by sharing your idea and encouraging people to, um, and encouraging people to, uh, discuss it and even tell their friends about it. Like that's kind of what you want. And, and so, um, um, so, so, so I always encourage people to be during that period of time, be generous and try to try to loop as many people in as you can, uh, during that period of time, because their interest, their energy it, are the things that are going to actually propel you. So like when you launch, when you've got, you know, a thousand people who helped you just each person, maybe a little bit along the way, helped you a little bit, on the journey, gave you one idea, gave you one bit of advice, they're now personally invested in your success because a small amount of them is wrapped up in your idea and your company. And so good things happen later. When you launch, they're the people who are going to like help you spread the word and they're going to you know, use social media and say, hey, guess what? This really cool thing that, uh, that Jeff was working on, they launched and they'll help spread the word for you. And so the more you spread the idea around, the more you pull people into the story and make them a small part of what you're building, they will then return the favor by feeling invested and believing that your success is a little bit of their success too. And that's really powerful. You have this great billboard uh, in San Francisco on 101 and it says, ask your developers or ask your developer. I think it's singular. Uh, and I, as you tell the story, it sounds as if you were, you know, your first customers were obviously developers, engineers. How do you, how, and how and when did you start to tell the story to a broader audience? Well, you know, it happened very organically, right? We made developers our core customer because, you know, communications itself is not new. You know, phones have been ringing for more than a hundred years, but developers were an underserved market. And developers drive so much of the innovation at every company, as they turn to digital channels, as they uh, need to build software in order to compete in the digital economy, you know, developers are becoming more and more and more influential inside of companies as the cost of this technology comes down. You know, that changes the nature of how innovation happens inside of companies. And so we serve developers. But then organically, more people inside of the company would uh, obviously start taking an interest because uh, as developers are building things, product managers got involved, engineering leadership got involved, and eventually the C-suite gets involved. And so 
what we've done is a very bottoms up approach, starting with developers, working our way into organizations. And because of the ease with which they can build on our product, organically, we make our way. Before we go on, here's a brief message from us. We just kicked off ticket sales for our highlight event in the fall. The virtual Bits and Pretzels Networking Week from September 27th to October 2nd. If you want to learn more about our program featuring the top of the league of the international founder NBC community and get your ticket before it's too late and we are sold out, go to bitsandpretzels.com. Again, that's bitsandpretzels.com. Tickets are limited, so better hurry up. Coming to our either or game right now. And this is how it works. I give you two words and you have to choose one and explain your choice in one sentence real quick. And the first one obviously is bits or pretzels. Bits. I'm trying to do less carbs. <laughs> Nerd or extrovert? Nerd. Do I need an explanation? It's just, that's just how, that's just who I am. I don't know. I am more comfortable at a computer than I am at uh, talking to people, I guess. You're doing a pretty good job right now, I have to say. Spending or saving? <laughs> uh, you know, as much as I hate to admit it, I'm probably more of a spender. I love the new shiny objects. Like Tesla, especially the- technology. Like oh. I'm a sucker for whatever the newest technology thing is. You, did you say Tesla? <laughs> did I? I didn't say Tesla, but yes, I, I, <laughs> I, I, am a, I do have a Tesla. It's true. Follow or lead? Uh, lead. I'm a very bad follower. Like as an entrepreneur, like I've never been someone who's like content being part of a big group. I, I, I do like kind of going my own path. And I think that's led me to be an entrepreneur and to found multiple companies and all this kind of stuff. Risk or safety? Risk. I'm, I'm kind of an adrenaline junkie, not in the sense of like, I necessarily need to bungee jump, which I've never done actually, but uh, I do like change. I'm kind of a change junkie and like in that is risk, but it also is interesting. And so I'm a fan of, of creating change in order to essentially see what happens. Uh, and that is, that is exciting. Numbers or ideas? Ideas. Make why? <laughs> why? <laughs> Great. Uh, yeah. Why? Why is that? You know what? I, as a learner, I like concepts as opposed to like memorization. Like I'm more um, like I take in information and, and synthesize it into an idea that I can apply repeatedly as opposed to like memorizing the facts of a situation. I have a very bad memory, but what I do is I kind of synthesize all the things that I see and hear and feel and read uh, into ideas that I can then reuse over and over and over again. Work or fun? Work. Work is fun to me. Uh, everybody's saying that. I should probably remove that question. Uh, tradition, <laughs> tradition or tradition? It's weird. I have a hard time having fun. I think like, really? like vacations are stressful to me because I'm like, I have no idea what I might possibly want to do on my time off. But, uh, but building something is exciting. I can always get up for building something. Okay. I mean, you know, there are several things it, you can do while you're on vacation, right? You know, not work, uh, hike, uh, I don't know, drive your Tesla. <laughs> I don't know. There are several things always, uh, but I mean, it's depending on... I enjoy hiking. I enjoy running. I enjoy cycling. These are all good things. Um, but I would say overall, I like work. Tradition or transition? Transition. You know, as a change junkie, you tend not, you tend to rely a little bit more on 
what's next, what's new, what's interesting, what don't we know yet, as opposed to what do we know. And, and I, like, I find comfort actually in, in the discomfort of the unknown as opposed to comfort in um, what has been. Uh, although I will say there are traditions that I enjoy. You know, being part of this human story that goes back thousands of years is important for us to recognize. And it's important for us to learn from the past and to recognize where we come from while we also look forward and, and, and build forward. Do you think we're learning something looking at the political situation right now? You know, I think there's, uh, because we are in these un uncharted waters, um, mostly in terms of, in a lot of ways, I think the, um, what the internet has done to society, there's obviously positives, but we are now seeing, uh, you know, 30, 25 years into the internet, uh, we are seeing some of the downsides where this, um, panacea of like global ideas, uh, where every idea can have an audience of billions of people. It turns out, I think human beings were not designed to converse with billions of other people. Uh, mm -hmm. I think we are designed, we are tribal creatures. We're designed to interact with hundreds uh, of people, not billions of people. And I think that is creating a lot of the conflict that we see now in, in our societies of conflict between left and right about um, ideologies and, and, and intolerance for other points of view because we're just exposed to way more human beings than we probably are designed. Our brains are able to process. And, um, and that is... The, that is one of the next big problems that we actually have to solve for before this thing called the internet actually tears society apart. Jeff, thank you so much for coming on the Bits and Pretzels podcast today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Britta. Be well. All right. That was it for today. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you hear, please subscribe. You find all episodes of this show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to podcasts. Spread the word and please tell at least five friends about us. We would really appreciate it. Don't ever miss breaking startup news from Munich, Austria, and Switzerland again. And learn the latest about what top founders and VCs from the international innovation community we have in store for our event in the fall. Come and visit us at bitsandpretzels.com. Again, that's bitsandpretzels.com. Stay safe and see you next week.